Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash shop. That's australiangeographic.com.au slash shop. Hi, I'm Liz Guinness and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today, I'm talking to Andrew Locke. Andrew is Australia's most accomplished mountaineer and while thinking of climbing even one 8,000 metre peak seems impossible to most of us, he has climbed all 14. He'll share with us what it takes to get up there and back and what it does to one's mind, body and soul. So I'm thrilled to be talking to Andrew today on this episode of Talking Australia. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you. So I believe you, before you were a a world-breaking mountaineer, (laughs) scoffing there, (laughs) um, you were a police officer. How uh, How did that come about and how did you then move from police officering um, to something else. Police officering <laughs> came about because Terrible. I left Ag College with um, uh, no real uh, job at hand and needed a job, so I joined the police force to tie me over. That took me to the country, and I was living and working in Wagga when uh, the first Australians to climb Mount Everest came through town giving their national tour presentation. And I went along and saw that Tim McCartney Snape and Greg Mortimer. Legends. Legends, yes, legends. and uh, and I was swept away by that story. And uh, I had I had had a, a very active uh, childhood in the outdoors. Came up through Scouts, and my school had a very oh, yeah. active outdoor I club. Was in that club as well, yeah, yeah it was yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. Did you grow up in Sydney? Yes, I did. Uh-huh. Yes, and and my school was very active in the outdoors, so that was great. Yeah. Um, but I, I hadn't uh, really taken that any further than normal bushwalking and camping and a little bit of cross country skiing. Yeah. I saw that slideshow. And I was absolutely overwhelmed by what I saw. And I just decided then and there that I had to go and climb Mount Everest. It was in the days before you could be guided up Everest. And, and I'm, not, I'm not the sort of person who would want to be guided anyway. But it was life-changing for me because I uh, decided to take up rock climbing immediately. And that required me to move away from Wagga. It's not a lot I was going to say, where could you rock climb in Wagga? Yeah. No, you can't. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> so I moved back to Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, learned to rock climb in the Blue Mountains, joined the Sydney Rock Climbing Club. And then were you, I, sorry to interrupt, but you were still working as a police officer then? Or yes, you, I was, yep, yes. Okay. Yes, although I was losing, starting to lose some focus. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> and uh, that, uh, that then led to going to New Zealand to do alpine training there. I did a couple of courses in New Zealand and then I went back successive summers to further my skills, all with a long-term view of going to climb Mount Everest. And... Uh, that came later, but uh, the first, gosh, four or five years were just rock climbing in Australia passionately every weekend. I really loved it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then going to New Zealand to develop my alpine skills. So in New Zealand, did you go to, is it Mount Aspiring? Is that where people go to train or are there different places you can go? There are different places. The Mount Cook National Park is the larger area uh-huh. and that's where I went. Uh-huh. And uh, there are guiding companies there that run courses. So I did a couple of those 
those technical courses to get the, to, to be able to transfer my rock climbing skills to the alpine environment. And the, the, the courses weren't basic, so you needed to I needed to come with some skill already, just the knots and the understanding of lead climbing and putting safety in the in the in the rock. So sorry, just for people who don't understand climbing very much, when you say lead climbing, what does that mean? Being on the pointy end of the rope, going up the cliff at the first. front, going first, so that if you fall, you're at risk of of uh, injury, unless you know how to place protection in the the rock to hold your fall, mm -hmm. and have your rope attached to another person, a belayer who feeds that rope to you, and, and so catches you if you fall. Yeah, exactly, and and that that can be transferred to the alpine environment we used different safety equipment we might use snow bars or ice screws rather than pitons, pitons. in a rock or wires yeah. or, or camming devices that we use in the rock but the principle is the same and uh, but more importantly i needed to start to learn about avalanches and and glacier travel and, and crevasses and how to self-rescue from if i fell down a crevasse or how to rescue someone else if they were injured right. falling down a crevasse so those were the the primary skills I need to learn and then just uh, basically develop those skills and, and be, uh, learn to climb steeper and, and higher mountains and, and to be able to push the limits a little bit. I, I, I'm just thinking about rock climbing in Australia and it's very dry, I would think, and then to transition into that icy environment, um, wearing a lot more gear as well. Is that something you have to learn to cope with? And Look, you do wear more gear, although climbing in New Zealand in summer can be really hot. And uh, the, the attire of the day was really just a set of thermals and a pair of shorts over the top. So okay. <laughs> it wasn't a fashion statement. But, um, yeah, of course, when the, when the weather came up, it could be quite cold and, and, and fairly brutal too. New Zealand cops some pretty heavy weather. Yeah, it does, absolutely. So from New Zealand, then how do you go from training in New Zealand to you start from a 4,000 metre peak, 6,000, and does it, is that how you take those steps up? That is pretty much the way to go. Yeah. So I joined, I was in the Army Reserve at the time, mm -hmm. and they, the Army had a, an alpine club, so I joined that club because that gave me then access to teams that were going off to climb higher mountains. and. So my first expedition with the Army Alpine Association was Mount McKinley, Denali in Alaska. Yep. I went uh, to that uh, and then as my, my network uh, grew, I started to meet other alpine climbers and people with interest in doing more than just the odd expedition. Mm -hmm. So uh, then I traveled to the, the former Soviet Union and climbed in the Pamir Ranges in Kazakhstan. That would have been quite an experience, I imagine, culturally. It was very controlled, so we didn't actually get to see much of the culture. It was in 89, so it was still the Soviet Union yeah, at the time. right. And uh, so we were very controlled, but I wasn't actually there for the for that. culture. <laughs> I get pretty focused. I don't want to meet people. I want to climb a mountain. <laughs> well, yes. <yeah, so. laughs> and, and Did you have local guides, though? Is that how it would work? No, there, no. no they, had, they transported us to the base camp of the mountain, and the base camp itself was was very strictly controlled and they told you where, which tent you had to sleep in and you had to dine in the, the communal dining tent but once on the mountain we were free to climb the mountain as we saw best and uh, and that's what we did mm -hmm. uh, and we climbed several mountains over there and, and I climbed my first 7,000 metre peak whereas Denali's a 6,000 metre peak mm -hmm. and so that was good and then when I went to Nepal joined some friends to uh, climb another 7,000 metre peak uh, in Nepal and so gradually I was building my, my altitude as well as my technical skill and experience. Uh, and, and eventually that then led to an invitation to join a very small team to go to Mount Everest. 
as my first attempt on any 8,000-metre peak, which is probably not the wisest right. choice. Okay. <laughs> and why is that? Just because it's the mother of all mountains? Uh, it's certainly not the... Well, it's the mother goddess of, of the world, but it is not the, the hardest peak, but it is certainly the highest peak. Mm. And I had no experience of the exponentially greater impact of high altitude that comes with being at above 8,000 metres compared to 7 or 6. And, and that effect is... Well, it's called the death zone for a reason, yeah. and, and you are literally dying up there. So you're on borrowed time, and we were climbing without chirpers, without oxygen, and that uh, seems in... pretty insane for someone who's doing their first eight thousand meter peak without oxygen. Is this? Well, I, I don't think it's insane, but but we could have prepared better. <laughs> <laughs> I take it back. I shouldn't have called you insane. <laughs> Look, I, I have always climbed my eight thousand meter peaks without oxygen, but that was a, a choice. Uh, sort of an ethical choice, I guess. I, I prefer to do it, to climb the mountains in, in a more pure style. For me, it's always been about wanting to know if I could climb those mountains, and and if I knew the answer before I went there, then there was no point in going. So wow. uh, I, I couldn't be bothered with a peak that I can walk up. Isn't it interesting though? Because I feel like a lot of people would be the complete opposite. They would like to take the risk factor out and say, "I know I can do it. It'll be safe. Therefore, I will do it." But you're telling me it's the opposite for you. There has yeah. to be an element of maybe I will, maybe I won't make it. It certainly has to be a significant and worthwhile challenge. So I'm not looking for extreme risk, although that tends to come with those high mountains. Yeah. What I'm really looking for is the challenge where the, the outcome is not assured and where I'm going to have to draw on all my resources to to make a successful ascent and uh, return. Okay, so to really test yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, I would think as well. All of those, and and fear is a huge factor on some of those mountains. So you have to manage the fear. Absolutely. Um, I, I, many many past girlfriends would say there's not much emotion going on inside me, but <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, certainly the psychological and and physical component is is uh, very real. Mm -hmm. And in and I have become quite spiritual. I think there is an emotional. Uh, component uh, of climbing and certainly within teams mm -hmm. then there's a very strong emotional component. So when you say you've become spiritual what does that what does that look like to you what do you mean? I, I re-energize in the mountains there for me there is a real tangible energy in the high mountains mm -hmm. and I find that I'm at peace in those mountains and, and whilst they're very challenging and physically and psychologically wearing they they recharge me I come back a, a calmer um, happier person for, for the experience, just for the time in the mountains. And then, of course, uh, over a number of months back in the real world, if, if uh, it erodes I recall that. Of that, it does erode that. And I need to go back to the mountains to, to recharge. I was doing some reading uh, over the last couple of days in preparing to talk to you about what being in the mountains does to you physically and what it's like on the top of Everest. I've, you know, I've done lots of reading and I've watched documentaries and all of the rest of it, but I would love to know, obviously physically it's incredibly challenging and I, I've read that things start shutting down, you know, your body starts shutting down and there's less oxygen and, and all of those sorts of things. What does it actually feel like to be there? What does it actually look like standing on the top of the, top of the world? Um, look, the, it is incredibly physically demanding, of mm. course, and... And I learned quickly not to put all my resources into just getting to the top to try and save some energy for that return journey. I've a lot heard of people, that, that people, more people die on the way down than on the way 
Look, I don't know if that's fact, but certainly people do die on the way down because they are so exhausted. They just so can't spent. motivate themselves to, to keep going down. Uh, it, when I reach the summit of a peak, it isn't a, a, a great celebration. It's mm -hmm. a feeling of satisfaction. Uh, it's a relief to have reached the top and know that I don't have to keep fighting my way up. But... When you say, sorry, when you say fighting, is it um, mentally? No, fighting the mountain. Fighting the, the fighting the mountain. Yeah, the... The, the conditions, the the... the, 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 the it's the altitude that is so demanding. So climbing those mountains, the, the faces are huge, and, and it may be that there's massive exposure and it's I'm solo climbing, uh, unroped and for, for thousands of metres. I might have been up there for, for days and days. The expeditions last for weeks, 10, mm. 10 weeks or more. And and so it just wears you down. And, and uh, frequently you might make a summit attempt and be unsuccessful, come back down, rest for a few days, wait for the weather to clear or the conditions to improve and yep. go back for another attempt. And week after week, you're losing weight. Uh, I typically would lose 10 or more kilos on an expedition. Great Jenny Craig alternative. Is this because uh, you don't feel like eating, but obviously you have to eat? Or is uh, it just your body's burning more because of all the physical activity? Or It's a combination of things. You're, you're, you are working really hard. The lack of oxygen... Uh, means that you do lose your appetite and, and you feel nauseous, so you don't eat a lot up there. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of muscle atrophy going on as, as you're burning your muscle with a, the, the, the extreme work that you're doing yeah. all the time. And and up there, generally I don't eat very much at all. I'll take a few muesli bars and, and that'll do me for a number of days. When I come down to base camp, I'll, I'll eat like a lot, but then go yeah. back up and starve again. Mm -hmm. So there's all these factors affecting your, your physical performance. It's just hard work and it's very dangerous. You're constantly very, very uh, focused on the dangers, I'm constantly risk managing every step of the mountain, uh, assessing the, the potential for avalanches or serac collapses or crevasses or weather coming in. I'm mm. trying to beat a storm that's coming in. And um, frequently, as we saw in 1996, storms come in earlier than forecast and catch people out. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I've had that myself. So um, I'm trying to, to work out uh, and manage all those those varying factors, so that when you finally get to the top, it is a real relief to stop having that, stop having to fight your way up. But of course, it's it's a great feeling to be up there and having reached the summit of, a, of an 8,000 meter peak. But I don't celebrate in any way until I get off the mountain, mm -hmm. and that's days later because it takes days to climb back down those mountains. So by the time I've reached the base camp. Uh, the the moment uh, of euphoria has passed, and it's really very much a, a sense of inner, inner satisfaction and inner glow. Mm -hmm. and I'm very content with the journey that I've just been on, but I'm I'm not one to jump up, beat my chest either on the mountain or in the base camp. And and so for me, uh, it's more a quiet time. It's time for reflection and, mm. and enjoying, and, and hopefully, I don't have to mourn the loss of a of a friend. But sometimes I do, and and yeah. so. Um, it's not, yeah. It's not necessarily a wild party when you get back down the bottom. Okay, so you're not doing, you know, uh, jumping up and down on the top of the peak. I can't imagine you'd have enough energy for that anyway. There's not a lot of space to do it. Either. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you just touched on that before about more, having to mourn some friends, and I know you were involved in a rescue. Uh, is it on K2? Am I right in saying that? Yeah. yeah a number of rescues over yeah. the years. Yeah. Um, so, what is that like? What does that feel like? Oh, well, if it's a situation where I'm rescuing someone, it, 
doesn't really feel like anything. It's, I'm focused on getting that job done mm-hmm. uh, and doing whatever's needed to, to get the person down off the mountain. Um, frequently, I've I've had climbing, well, not too frequently, but a number of times I had climbing partners die, uh, get killed on the mountain, and whilst that is a uh, you know it's a tragic loss of life, I do approach these expeditions with my eyes wide open, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so do my climbing partners. And whilst it's we try to avoid that happening, and it's regrettable Obviously. when it does, it is a part of mountaineering it is high risk now i'm not talking about the commercial guided climbing on on the you know everest and, and other peaks i'm talking about the more extreme climbing where we are pushing the boundaries mm-hmm. and unfortunately sometimes we get it wrong and an accident occurs um, and and we try to learn from it we mourn the loss of our friend but it doesn't stop me from uh, loving the mountains right. or wanting to keep climbing okay so when this happens is it often I shouldn't, perhaps often isn't the right word, but is it a case of um, something's gone wrong, like there, there's been an avalanche, or, you know, crevasses opened up or something like that, or is it a matter of the body's just shut down and said, I can't do it anymore, I've had enough? Yeah, it could be any of those things. Right. So uh, the K2 example, when we, when we reached the summit, it was a bad season. Uh, very few teams were climbing up. Uh, we did. We... we managed it in a way that allowed us to climb the lower half of the mountain in the poor weather so we were positioned high in the mountain when the good weather came we yep, made a dash for the summit right, yep. which which worked nicely but in our team of four going for the summit on the way down we we had gone very lightweight we didn't carry much rope <clears throat> our team spread out and so the piece of rope that we were carrying we fixed over the most dangerous point which we would like to have taken further up the mountain we had to leave for one of our team who was lagging behind Mm -hmm. Uh, and he was then joined by two members of another team so we left that rope for them but that meant we didn't have it for where we needed it further up the mountain and when we finally reached the summit and then came down on the descent without the rope two of our team and one of those other two climbers fell to their death because uh, we didn't have the rope in where we needed it Uh, what you do in that circumstance absolutely nothing they were off the mountain gone uh, but but uh, one of the climbers, well, a surviving climber from the other team, then collapsed with the early stages of cerebral edema. Uh, and so all my focus just went into getting him down because descent is the cure for that yeah. uh, illness. And, and I put all my, my resources and energy in just to get him off the mountain. So, again, just for people who don't understand what a cerebral edema is, that's what's happened, what's happened there? Essentially, it's a swelling of the brain mm-hmm. uh, because of the, the low pressure, and, and I don't understand uh, all the, the, the physics of it, but, yeah, fluid leaches from cells and causes swelling, and uh, uh, it'll put you into a coma reasonably quickly and, and kill you in uh, just a few hours right. if you don't... If you don't move down the mountain, which yeah, is that go down altitude. to high pressure. Yep, and yep. pulmonary edema is the, the, the other... Uh, version of that which is where the fluid leaches into your lungs and you basically drown in your own body fluid. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment with Andrew. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you'll also receive exclusive benefits including 10% of all products purchased in our e-store. 
Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia. Is it surprising to you that people people continue to do this? Humans continue to push themselves like this? No, not at all. We try to manage the risks. Yeah. Um, and uh, high altitude mountain climbing without oxygen and 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 doing it regularly is a high risk game. But it is all about managing those risks, and we try to do it as best we can. Sometimes we get it wrong. Uh, but also, personally, I found that I have a physiology that generally performs reasonably well at high altitude. So that allowed me to keep going back, and I felt good, and I was, I've always been reasonably strong at altitude. Um, I have had a couple of brushes with, with um, altitude sickness, serious altitude sickness, but um, I was able to recognise it and, and retreat mm-hmm. before it got too serious, and that's, that's a part of the risk management of that environment. And is that, again, being at that altitude, your brain, everything slows down in your brain? You, you don't think as clearly? You, is that part of the challenge too? Or Yeah, your cognitive, cognitive function is affected by the, the, the lack of oxygen. And so you have to be cognizant of that mm-hmm. and, uh, and monitor. And, and that's what I do as I climb. And, and if I'm with a team, then I'll monitor my team and we monitor each other. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and, and if you're soloing, because you mentioned before that sometimes <clears> you solo, which seems lovely in one way out there on your own but in another way even more high risk well then it just takes greater self-awareness and and Mm self-monitoring and and that is what i do Um, a couple of times i've been uh, several times been obliged to bivouac around eight thousand meters because of i couldn't get back down off the mountain conditions had changed and that's always a significant concern because it means you're staying up at high altitude for longer than you should uh, and without oxygen um, so the, the risk of the edema setting in, that acute mountain sickness coming on, is very high. Uh, and, and sometimes I accept that risk and other times I'll just fight as hard, hard as I can just to get down, get down. no and matter what the condition is. How far down do you need to go for it to ease up? Is it different with individuals? Or? It is, but a good thousand metres or more uh-huh. to, to see any real change but a thousand meters will make a difference okay and uh, we carry sometimes in big teams we might carry uh, some one of those pressure chambers you can put someone into it and zip oh, it up yeah, and right. pump it up which effectively lowers their pressure by about a thousand meters and that does have a significant effect on their 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 state hey i didn't know that mm. i didn't know you could do that mm. so the sherpas uh, Presumably Sherpas are carrying that up. Is it coming pieces or is it a, what does it look like? It looks like uh, an oversized sausage, uh, <laughs> large enough to put a person inside. You right. basically get them in there, zip them up, and there's a little foot pump and you just pump it. Um, yeah, on a big commercial team, the the if they're using Sherpas, then that, that would probably be carried up by the Sherpas. In my private climbing we don't use Sherpa support mm-hmm. uh, in the same way we don't use oxygen we like to carry everything ourselves so then we don't carry chambers like that because yeah, they're, right. they're excess baggage but particularly in the guiding world when there's a significant duty of care then we do carry those or oxygen or, or some means of um, aiding people when they yeah, suffer right. from the altitude. And where do you carry it up to? So there's base camp and then there's is it camp one, camp two, camp Depending on the size of the mountain, you might have four camps. You could even have five camps yeah. on the mountain. Probably wouldn't take the the chamber the to the, the <laughs> highest camps because in the guiding environment, almost always you'd have people on oxygen 
at those higher camps and going for the summit on yeah, the 8,000 right. metre peaks. But, but perhaps on a 7,000 metre peak, you might take the chamber um, all the way to the highest camp if they're not using oxygen. But if they are using oxygen, then the oxygen is an alternative to the, the okay. chamber. Uh-huh. And you can um, put them on oxygen and then march them down the hill and drag them down the hill if you need to. Uh, so you have, um, my understanding is you've climbed every 8,000 metre peak on the planet? Yes. Is that true? That's right. Is that, so that's absolutely every 8,000 metre peak or every climbable 8,000 metre peak? No, there are only, difference? No, there are only right. 14 8,000 uh-huh. metre peaks on the planet and I guess I climb them all. So where to now? You've done all of that. What are you... <laughs> well, you know, it was all about climbing Everest initially. Yeah. I saw that slideshow. I set my sights on Everest. That first attempt didn't go well, uh, and, and nor did the second attempt. So then I stepped back and set my sights on climbing some other 8,000-metre peaks to develop the skill and the experience to be able to come back and lead my own expedition up Everest, which I did after I'd climbed six other 8,000-metre peaks. But when I finally reached the summit of Everest, uh, I was standing up there and thought, well, this is very nice. I've, I've you know, realised my dream. <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> but I'm not done with mountaineering. So what can I do? What more can I do? And, and I realised then that the end, end of any significant challenge really is just the base camp, the starting point for the next big challenge. So that's when I set my sights on climbing all 14 of the 8,000 metre peaks, which I did. And then that, the, the end of that became the starting point for more adventures. So in the last few years, I've been uh, uh, trying to conduct an expedition in Alaska, north of the Arctic Circle in winter, a traverse of a mountain range up there, which has been particularly brutal and not yet successful. What's uh, the mountain range? Brooks Range. Brooks Range. Yeah, it stretches right across the width of Alaska. Mm-hmm. And on my first attempt, we were experiencing temperatures of minus 60 Celsius uh, with it plus wind chill. I was going to say, um, what was the wind chill? Yeah, well, we couldn't measure it. Oh. <laughs> but it was, it was cold enough to break everything that we had, Absolutely. including us. And uh, and then we mostly I've just had gear failure uh, in those temperatures. Uh, I went back last time, last year, and, and attempted to solo the traverse because my adventure partner didn't want to go back. <laughs> well, she thought, I'll just do it on my own. <laughs> well, uh, I really enjoyed it, uh, but... The conditions are so variable there that that I wasn't able to carry all the equipment I needed to cope with with those varying conditions. It's not like going to the South Pole in summer where you put on a pair of skis and away you go. Yeah, I needed skis and snowshoes and crampons, and and still that wasn't enough for the the conditions I was experiencing. Uh, so that I, I've yet to fully determine how I'm going to make that work, um, but I have just returned from another adventure. Some friends and I sailed a yacht from South America down to Antarctica and went in search of unclimbed mountains. So not anywhere near the, the altitude of the Himalaya, yeah. but but uh, Virgin Peaks, which was just wonderful. And, and we went yeah. kite skiing. And, and Oh, that sounds incredible. It was lovely. So that's obviously a summer expedition. It was a summer expedition. Yeah. It was warm. Uh, it was only about minus 10 on the coldest night, which is fabulous. And then we, we climbed a, a bunch of mountains and did some new routes on other mountains and then jumped on the yacht and sailed back. Sounds quite civilised, really, doesn't it? <laughs> it was lovely. <laughs> um, just if I can take you back to Everest for a minute yeah. and talk about, you were mentioning before about um, commercial guided climbs and then non-commercial guided climbs. What's your take on that? I know that there's looks like there's some new regulations about climbing and um, having 
I think China's, you know, there's particular rescue teams that they're putting in place and all those sorts of things. Um, is Everest a mountain that should, people should be taken up commercially? Is, or is it? Look, it's a hard question. And the reason it's a hard question is that, that guided climbing has been around since climbing has been around. If we think back to the, the European Alps and the Swiss guides with their, their knickerbockers and their long wooden axes and, and taking people up the, the gentle slopes of those hills. That's really how mountaineering uh, was came about. So then that spread around the world to other to other areas. Should it be in the Himalayas and uh, on the highest peaks? I'd be per- perfectly happy if it wasn't, because it has changed the tone of climbing yes. over there. Yeah. Uh, and and regrettably, it is it's quite unregulated, and the re- regulations that are brought in are not brought in for safety they're brought in predominantly from a financial perspective so the governments can get a little bit more money that's from the the commercial operators mm. of the, the operation the, the whole industry uh, and so unfortunately we see due to that lack of re- lack of regulation we see predominantly operators who shouldn't be there i don't think we can blame the clients for being uh inexperienced if the operators are allowed to take mm. inexperienced people but what we do see uh, are a n- number of operators over there who have very little experience or focus on duty of care, and and they will accept people with little or no experience, but provide little or no uh, professional guidance for them on the mountain, and may may engage the Sherpas who themselves don't have the skills or experience to be guiding or even carrying loads up the mountain. So it becomes a case of the blind leading the blind. I don't know how anyone in good conscience could do that if people don't have the skill set in the first place and then the guides don't have the skill set. How can you well, there even are, dream yeah, of doing that? There are unethical operators out there, unfortunately. So from my perspective, the regulation should be about the, the uh, limiting the number of operators and, and ensuring that those operators have qualified leaders and guides and support crew in this in their operations so that they can then manage the the inexperienced climbers who come along now i i was in fact the first australian to lead a commercial guided expedition up everest uh, and the problem with uh tr- trying to regulate the experience of the the uh clients is that uh, they generally overstate their skills and experience. And they come from any, all over the world. Right, because they desperately want to get... Well, they, get they want to do it. They've made their mind up that that's what they want to do. And so, I mean, who hasn't enhanced a job application um, oh, one time in their life? <laughs> <laughs> and so basically, they when I had seven clients and, and not one of them was truthful in, in their skill and experience. And, and some grossly overstated it. Uh, and, and I took the tough decision for a couple of them and sent them home, which very few operators will do. Mm. Um, but I felt that was the right thing to do. Uh, so, how did, how did they respond to that? that? You know, I think actually they were relieved because they realised once they were on the mountain that they'd bitten off far more mm. than they could chew, and wanted an honourable way out. Yeah. And if I made the decision for them, them, yes, <laughs> absolutely, they were able to ex- exit with honour. Yeah. Um, and and so that was that was fine. I I I think guided climbing is here to stay. What guided climbing does. Uh, allow less experienced people to achieve things that they wouldn't other, otherwise achieve. Um, but it does very much 
take out the spirit of the challenge, of the adventure, uh, which for me is what mountaineering is all about. So mm. when I do my personal climbing, it's all about the spirit of adventure. And I love the planning and, and the research and the preparation and then all the the the, the, the mental demands and, and the psychological aspect of it and trying to work out which is the, which is the best route and, and assessing the conditions and managing the risk, that to me is what makes mountaineering such a lot of fun. So if you pay to be guided up, that is removed. Takes but all of that out of the It equation. does. But then I've made a, a, a lifetime of mountaineering, so that's my particular uh, enjoyment. A lot of people don't want that. They... they just want to climb Mount Everest or another peak. But and is I, that just to t- I feel like then it's just to tick it off. Well, that's for them to answer. I can't, yeah, I can't, can't answer speak that for to them, that. But, yep. um, th- that's not wrong. It's just different. Mm. But as I say, it has changed the tone of mountaineering, and particularly on mountains like Everest and perhaps Choyu and a few of the other easily guidable peaks because they are now overwhelmed by these commercial operations which then push out the private climbers like myself. And there's been some conflict, on, it's occurred on Everest, where private climbers have essentially been told to get off the mountain because they're in the way of the commercial expeditions. And fights have broken out. And Really? Yes, yes. Verbal or physical? Uh, physical. Or physical yeah, fights? Yeah, quite nasty, quite nasty fights. Really? And, and so that's a, that's a great shame. And a huge shame in such a sacred place, I would think. Yeah, yeah. But uh, money drives <laughs> passion. Pretty much everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, so an- another thing that I think um, has kind of astounded me about what's happening on Everest is the what seems to be a proliferation of, of rubbish and oxygen canisters left and all of those sorts of things. Is that something that strikes you as well that you've seen change over the years? Well, actually, I, I think it'd be fair to say that I've seen change for the better. Oh, good. So when I first started going to those big mountains... Rubbish was less of a concern to the expeditions. I don't think even then uh, people were going there to conquer the mountains. We no longer use that sort no. of terminology. But but as the as the commercial expeditions came in, certainly that with the influx of people and the, the support logistics, yes, we started to see lots of tents and oxygen bottles and, and rubbish start to accumulate. But with time, I, the, the, the more professional of those operators did uh, take a fairly appropriate environmental perspective and try to remove as much rubbish as possible. Mm-hmm. And it's my understanding now that a number of those um, higher-end operators will pay Sherpas by weight of what they bring down, oh, okay. uh, even if it's not their own rubbish. So I have been up the, on top for a few years now, but, but I understand that as far as possible the majority of the rubbish is being brought down. What I can tell you, and look, and I speak from experience myself, is that when you climb these big peaks, you can have the strongest environmental intention. Mm. <clears throat> but what happens is you, you see, you put your tent up at, at 8,000 metres and you go off and you're there for a couple of days waiting for the, the weather to break and then you go off and climb to the summit, you come back, you've been to the summit, people who haven't been there cannot understand the physical debilitation that occurs. Of course. It's, you're literally on your hands and knees and you collapse back into the tent that evening and, and, and then you've now been up at 8,000 metres for several days and your body's shutting down, you're literally dying. You get out in the morning with the intention of pulling out your tent and it's frozen into the ice. Right. And that means hours and hours of hacking away and trying to retrieve the tent. And for the most part... 
they will do that. They'll spend those hours and hours. But sometimes it's the the weather's terrible or they literally think they're dying and they just go you know what it's not worth it I I just have to get out of here of course and so the tent stays and that's why the rubbish accrues up there and as far as possible we will take rubbish that we find down from the mountain so on my expeditions I'm always happy to cut away old fixed rope or Mm. tents that I find up there Heck, if someone wants to leave a good tent up there (laughs) take it (laughs) (laughs) perfectly happy in my storage unit but um but sometimes things get left behind mm-hmm. because of the circumstances. I don't think anyone goes up there with the intent of leaving valuable equipment up there because it is so expensive. I would imagine, yeah. Just an oxygen bottle costs 350 US dollars. So it's, it's worth bringing down. Yeah. Um, what's worth more, obviously, is coming down with your life. So, exactly. And, yeah. and, and, and if you have you to make a choice, of course, unfortunately, it's a and because there are so many inexperienced people going up there and so much logistics being brought up that inevitably some of it is going to be left behind Mm -hmm. and the countries the host countries i don't know whether their intention is completely honorable but they do impose a uh, a levy on a rubbish levy and and they are meant to check what you take in and check what you bring out and if there's a discrepancy then you lose your rubbish deposit okay I don't know how how well that's being enforced these days. I was going days. to say you said meant to meant to check in and out, but yes. does that happen? I I, I doubt it. Okay. In, in certainly in Pakistan, when I climb there regularly, they were they were very efficient at that. I don't know if it's as efficient in Nepal or Tibet. Mm-hmm. So I have heard that you are heading back to Everest next year. Is this is this true? Uh, I'm likely to. Yes. Yeah. Some some clients uh, trekking and and low altitude climbing clients have asked me to lead them on a guided climb mm-hmm. up Everest next year and I've uh, relinquished and, <laughs> and said You haven't that retired from the 8,000 metre peak club just yet. Well, I, I kind of did yeah. when I finished them all, but uh, I'll never say never and, and I do miss it. Um, I, get, I think I'm getting a bit long in the tooth for uh, too many more trips to the extreme altitude, but I am looking forward to taking a nice tight team of of compatible people with a, with the right attitude to a safe and fun climb, mm-hmm. and and so I will run that expedition next year and see what happens after that. How important is it for the team to be compatible? Like you you rely on one another up there, right? So look, you do. I, I take very much the perspective that uh, clients are not a distinct entity within. A guided operation they're not there to be carried up the mountain uh, and and nor is the Sherpa support team an elite operation that's a distinct entity I very much like to bring everyone together I like the clients to actually assist with the load carrying to have, mm. have an understand of the work the ship is doing and how important it is to give them the support they need to get the job done yep. but I also like the Sherpas to understand that the clients are there, <clears throat> excuse me, to realise a dream, and then it's not just a business operation. It's very much a a, a a team environment. We're all going there to try and succeed in a an organisational objective, mm. uh, and so I very much try to make it a family affair. Uh, and so for me, it's it is important that that everyone gets on and there is that emotional engagement that is, I think, essential essential to you know powerhouse team performance yeah 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 definitely 
So once you're back down off Everest, uh, you're running, you run um, training courses. So someone wants to get started. Say, for instance, I want to get started. I'm thinking, speaking yep. to you, amazing. <clears throat> How do I start? Where do I, what do I do? Just Google me and find my <laughs> website. <laughs> yes, I do. I and others run uh, Alpine training courses in Australia. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in the snowies, I would think. In the snowies, yeah. yes. And they're, they're very much introductory courses because we don't have big mountains here. And thankfully, we don't have crevasses here. But I, I can introduce people to the, the environment and it, that then gives them a chance to assess if they enjoy it and want to take it further. Mm -hmm. um, the sort of skills that I would impart would allow people then to go and do a technical course or to be guided up. A simple peak in the Himalayas, one of the trekking peaks. <clears throat> but after that, they need to either go and... Uh, do a technical course in New Zealand mm -hmm. or join a club and start getting the skills and experience that they need then to go and do higher peaks. But if they want to do the higher peaks, Google me. <laughs> <laughs> One stop shop. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So do you have to have a certain level of fitness to even do the beginner courses? So oh, look, it's you... good to be fit. No, you don't have to be extremely fit to do mm -hmm. the beginner courses because it's about introducing people to that environment to give them an awareness of how physically fit they would need to be to okay. then go on and, and take it more seriously. So... I, I say that people should have a reasonable degree of fitness to come on because they'll enjoy it more. Mm. We have to, we are climbing faces. It, it is roped climbing and uh, there's ice climbing and like snow. It is, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And we snowshoe in and we camp out. and So they do need to be reasonably fit. You've got to carry a backpack and the yeah. like. Yeah. Um, but you don't have to be extremely fit. It's, you don't have to be over the top. It's, it's, not, a, um, it's not an elite game at, at that level. Okay. So it sounds like you're going to be pretty busy then in the next little while. I Everest, so. <laughs> guiding, kite uh, kite skiing, and maybe even some kite surfing. You've just moved to the Sunshine Coast, did you say? Yes, that's right. And the, the, the kite surfing um, is, will be training for my kite skiing because we had a lot of fun in Antarctica kite skiing. We covered massive distances in a very short amount of time and that got us from peak to peak to climb these, these unclimbed peaks that... Uh, we were seeking, yeah. uh, and it was just such fun skiing along with the kite. So, yes, yeah, so that, that may be uh, a big part of my future. The next thing. Right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. Very welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You too. Cheers. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com, or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au slash Talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and hear you next time.